Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our pecs. It's gonna get us. It's gonna get us all. What are you talking about? Why? Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Now, Big Little Lies edition. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. We are here. We are done with Westeros. We did it. It's finished. I mean, Richard, you and I didn't get to talk about the end of Game of Thrones, but uh, maybe that's for the best. But we are now, we've moved away from Westeros. We are off to Monterey, California to talk about Big Little Lies season two here on Still Watching. Uh, Richard, on a scale of Nicole Kidman's hair to Meryl Streep's hair, how excited are you to talk about Big Little Lies with me? Oh boy, um, Shailene Woodley's hair. <laughs> I mean, to talk to you, of course, I'm thrilled. Um, but I was one of the many people who, you know, after the first season concluded, uh, was like, well, that was a pretty perfect seven hours of television. We don't need any more of that. And they would be crazy to even entertain the idea of doing a sequel. And then here we are talking about the second season. Um, so, you know, I'm trepidatious about it, but, um, based on what I've seen so far, uh, I think a lot of good stuff has come back. Um, and some new stuff is intriguing as well. So, um, so far, so good. Yeah, I was a little worried as well, but, um, from what I've seen, I've watched the first three episodes. Um, uh, we will only be talking about episode one, uh, today, but I've watched the first three episodes and I'm feeling like actually pretty high on this season. And I was also feeling kind of skeptical about it. So I thought, you know, maybe before we talk about the episode itself, we should sort of con- contextualize 
Big Little Lies season one, what it meant, uh, why they decided to go beyond the source material of the book to make a second season, all of that. Um, and uh, before we get into that, I did want to say that if you are listening to the show for the first time, you haven't joined us on our many other TV journeys. You know, we take we take a season of television, one episode at a time. We talk about all the things we want to talk about. Sometimes we have interviews, but another thing we like to do is read feedback from you guys. So if you want to email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, all of your big little eyes, thoughts, uh, your favorite wigs, outfits, burns, um, windswept cliff shots, whatever it might be. We would love to read your emails on the air. So email stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. But like, okay, so let's talk about season one of Big Little Lies, which was this thing that, um, you know, I think we were all pretty excited for when it came around because the, the movie star allure of Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon, not to mention their other fine co-stars working together on an HBO limited series. Um, that felt like an event in and of itself before we even saw a single frame. Um, and even though it was only a couple of years ago, I feel like our, our standards of what is an event and what isn't has like slightly changed, but it seemed like a big deal. And then it became, sort of a bigger hit than even I expected it to. The ratings grew. It's a mis- It was a mystery show. So people got sort of addicted to the soapy mystery of it and the auteur, um, high quality, you know, filmmaking delivered by Jean-Marc Vallée. So Richard, what was your experience around season one? What did you think of, of its popularity and, and how well they, they pulled off that first season? Well, yeah, I think, I think the, for me personally, like, I was expecting something with big stars being, you know, in nice houses, screaming at each other and being, you know, sort of bitchy. And, and that was kind of where the show was going to locate its, um, drama and comedy. Um, and I did not expect it to be this, because I, I wasn't familiar with the book, um, to be this, re- the, the really rich and satisfying, um, acting showcase that it is filmmaking showcase that it is um i you know i think that like we talked about with sharp objects on this podcast last summer um you know there was there's something really signature about the way the valet f- does this kind of episodic television um and it, and at the time with Bela Eliza, like i'd never seen anything like it and so that was really thrilling um and i think that the show i mean game of thrones obviously is a testament to this as well but big little eyes with less of a sort of universally appealing like dragons and swords and all that. Um, it, it, the, it's the way that it grew as a hit is such a testament to week to week airing of episodes versus yeah. a sort of Netflix style or Amazon style kind of dump of all everything because you watched as the conversation grow and it became this really organic word of mouth sensation. Um, you know, that was gift to hell and, you know, sort of just everyone, everything, every kind of cultural thing kind of spinning off of Big Little Lies. And here you had a story that was about, um, almost entirely women and was not about, um, anything all that flashy. Yes, there was a murder, but like, it, that, that was kind of it. It was otherwise pr- a pretty kind of, you know, simple and analog show. Um, so I thought that was really exciting. And if I were, you know, working at one of the streaming services, I would look at that phenomenon and be like, mm, is there a way we can tap into that? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, we should say that 
Jean-Marc Vallée, who did such a good job with season one and with Sharp Objects, which we talked about on this podcast, um, is not the director of season two. That's Andrea Arnold, who um, I first sort of became aware of with the film uh, Fish Tank 2009 from when I was a Michael Fassbender completist and watched Fish Tank, which is sort of like a a, a more a modest film. She has several films that she did before that. Then she did a Wuthering Heights and then she did American Honey, which got a lot of attention on the festival circuit uh, in 2016. She's also directed some episodes of television as well. Um, I think you and I were both a little bit surprised by how much the, her directing style in this second season seems to match Jean-Marc Vallée. Like it, it, it's hard. It was hard for me to think what Big Little Lies is going to look like without Jean-Marc Vallée. And we talked about this a little bit on, on Little Gold Men, the podcast we do about award season, but I think, I think it bears repeating that like Big Little Lies season one was such a Jean-Marc Valley joint, which we didn't really even know what that looked like, even though we had seen films by him until we watched Sharp Objects and we're like, okay, we really know what it means when Jean-Marc Valley does a season of television. We know what this means. So what does it mean for Andrea Arnold to come in and, and do season two? And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, in the first three episodes, but, you know, specifically even in this first episode, I'm surprised by, you know, the dreamlike surreal flashes and the use of music that seemed just to match valet to a T. Um, I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts about that or anything about Andrea's filmmaking that you do see evident um, in this season so far. Well, I think that something that Arnold and valet have in common is that both of their filmmaking has this kind of watchful hovering observational quality to it. Um, you know, obviously valet is really into kind of quick cut mosaic kind of collage, um, filmmaking whereas arnold's a bit more straightforward but if you see something like american honey which was her first film set in the united states it was a big thing at Cannes a couple years ago uh, and it's a really wonderful three-hour road trip epic kind of movie that just rambles along with not much of a plot um and yet a lot is communicated like she's a she's got a gorgeous vis- visual sensibility especially when she has a little bit more of a budget than her earlier films like red road or even fish tank which looks great but you know yeah she, she's able to expand a bit um, and so it's interesting, you know, they do, there are similarities between these two filmmakers, but it is interesting watching Arnold, who is this kind of revered auteur who's not very, ma- made very many films. She won a, a, a Academy Award for a short film she made about 14 years ago. Um, and so, you know, people kind of really cherish what her next project's going to be. And she's done some other television. She did, um, I Love Dick and Transparent. Um, but here she is coming into something that had such a signature style. And applying her sort of her her thing on it, but also kind of having to abide by the rules that HBO, I think, is probably locked down because the first season was such a success. So, you know, you could think of it one way, which is like, is this like a big paycheck job? Is this a way for her to get more, you know, name recognition in the States? Yeah, maybe. And good for her. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I'm just kind of curious to see as the season goes on where the sort of Arnoldness of everything comes out. Um, maybe it will just be in what she cooks out of the actors versus, you know, instead of changing the visual style or the sort of rhythm of its editing. Um, Valet did do some editing on the first few episodes of this season, I believe. Um, so I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing for this really, um, you know, beloved filmmaker in, you know, in certain sort of indie circles to kind of come in after someone else has, has set the tone and just, I don't know, try to figure out what to do with it on her, on her, on her own. So, so aside from the, the, you know, star turn performances, I think that's another really interesting aspect of it. 
Yeah. And another thing, you know, that we talked about when we, when we covered sharp objects is, um, how interesting it is that Jean-Marc Bellet has chosen, uh, first with wild, then with, um, big little eyes and then with sharp objects, these very female fronted, um, you know, book adaptations and how interesting it was, to talk about Big Little Eyes season one, which, uh, yes, is based on novel written by Leanne Moriarty. And as far as, you know, as far as they tell it, the actresses who are also executive producers had a lot of input in how the story was told, but it was still a story like exec produced by David E. Kelly, scripts written by David E. Kelly and shot by Jean-Marc Vallée. So there's this like masculine storytelling and, and visuals to go with this very female fronted story. And so I'm, you know, interested to see if I can clock any difference with having a woman behind the camera uh, to tell this story that is so focused on women. Um, you know, I, I have no objection. I have zero objections with how Jean-Marc Vallée shot, you know, basically anything that he's worked on. So it's not like I'm like, well, I can't wait to see her improve it. But, you know, I'm, I'm just like interested to look at if there is any difference um, having her there, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think there, I think there very well could be. And I think, you know, uh, as we go on talking about this season, like, Obviously, um, certain characters, particularly Zoe Kravitz's character, who was certainly in the first season, but was not kind of part of the core group. And then her character served this incredibly major plot, you know, function at the very end of the season. So she's being brought more to the fore. And I'm really curious, um, what that's going to mean. And I, you know, we, we, you and I have talked about this on our other podcast, but like, um, I, I think that there could be the the opportunity where Arnold can put more of her stamp on it because there's a character who hasn't been as, as, as fleshed out as the other ones. And so maybe she can put her stamp there. Yeah. And then of course the other opportunity she has and the other big difference between Big Little Lies season one and season two um, is the addition of Meryl Streep. Like as if this weren't star powered enough, mm-hmm. uh, Meryl Streep joins the cast as um, Nicole Kidman's character, Celeste's mother-in-law, Mary Louise, uh, a part written for Meryl Streep. Mary Louise is her, her birth, her given name. That's her real name. So like they wrote the, <laughs> they wrote the yeah. role for her, named the character after her. So they were lucky that she said yes. Um, and, she's just incredible in this part um you know you see it right from the jump um in this episode but you know it just it sort of goes throughout and i was i was curious um how much of a part of the show that she would be i thought that maybe she would just be like a featuring but she's no she's just like right in there Mm -hmm. um and she's got something um i can't remember if i if i brought this up on little gold men and sorry that we're sort of doing a little bit of double duty this will be the only week where we will sort of have talked about something uh in quite so much detail twice but um that she's doing something more than just like uh that midwestern nice you know there's midwestern nice character which is like someone who um, smiles and says passive aggressive things anyway. And that's a character that I think we've seen. She's doing something else, which is similar to that, but even sharper and even sort of weirder, um, in an off kilter way. And it's so funny because like I, I was rewatching the episode just before we started recording this and I was trying to envision what her lines looked like on the page and how she transform them. I mean, I guess that's an exercise you can do with any actor, any script, but I was like, okay, she just had a line that said, my son is dead. That's that's a line that she had on the page. And then she just makes this 
whole meal out of it. I mean, I guess as a line, you can easily make a meal out of it, but she just, there's a weird pause. And then she says it in a way that's just like, and then the way that Reese is playing off of her in that particular scene, that coffee shop scene from this episode. Um, so what, what do you feel, Richard, that, you know, other than her usual genius, uh, a pair of fake teeth and a, and a nice mousy wig, what is, what is Meryl bringing, uh, to this, like, um, this recipe, this concoction of women, what, what happens when you throw Meryl in there? Well, I think for one thing, we now know, based on the interactions in this first episode, we now know why there were those paparazzi shots of, Reese Witherspoon throwing what looked like a frappuccino or ice cream at Meryl Streep's back when, <laughs> when filming this. Cause like they had, there's such a clear antagonism between those two characters already. Um, so it's kind of, a, it's fun to see that. It'll be fun to see that escalate. I think, um, I think for me, it, the streepiness of it all is so interesting because in her sort of, I don't know what you want to call it. Third act of her career, um, you know, sort of early mid two thousands to the present, you know, she's been the grand dame of, of acting and she's showing up in as Florence Foster Jenkins or as Miranda Priestly or as Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she's working with certain directors who let's say are not as bigger, uh, you know, they're, they're not as big of names as she is. Um, you know, and you can sometimes seem like that's because she wants to be the sort of, the, the, the biggest thing in the room, basically. Um, so it's interesting to see her now coming into something that's already been established. There are other big stars in it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real auteur director behind, I mean, she's not an auteur in that she's not writing the scripts, but you know, like a real sort of a, a director with real authorship, uh, behind the camera, um, who's renowned in her own regard, in her own right. Um, so I don't know. I guess I'm not sort of implying anything negative about Meryl Streep and Meryl Streep and other things, but like it's interesting already watching her be a team player. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And there's also that sense of, um, other actresses might get sort of swallowed by her in that way. Like she's being a team player, but also when you put her up against a Reese and a Nicole, like they're able to sort of go toe to toe in a way that maybe not every single actor could. Um, and so that's, that's pretty sort of amazing to see. Yeah. I just, I love her just like slipping in there and wanting to be a part of this. It makes me like delighted to see. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um. 
All right. So should we just like zip through this episode and talk about things? Yeah. Things we liked, things we saw, things we liked. Um, let's start with the opening credits and, and, um, you know, it's, they're similar to same song, similar vibe to the season one credits. You've got the kids dancing. That's similar to season one and all of that. They're a little taller, a little older. Young mm-hmm. Sheldon, uh, is, you know, a few million dollars <laughs> richer or whatever, but, uh, yeah. they're all, they're all there. Um, and then you just have, you know, you, you have a shot of all the women driving and Meryl's one of them too. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like, and now she's here. And that's, I don't know, it's kind of incredible. The, the motif of water, pounding waves, aquarium, swimming, all of that sort of stuff, uh, continues. Continues. I mean, how can it not be? Continues to be a part of of the story. Uh, yeah. Did you have anything in the opening that you that uh, stuck I, out I, to you? Yeah, I mean, I like the driving. I think that's something. You know, I live in New York City, and so I don't own a car. And you know, it's rare that I am behind the wheel of a car. But whenever I'm in, you know, visiting my parents or out in California, sometimes like I, I realize like how isolating being in a car all the time can be. You know. And especially for these characters who are, you know, at the onset of this season, like, so some more than others, you know, stewing in their own sort of, whether it's guilt or sadness or both or anxiety or whatever it is, um, you'd think after the kind of unity of the last season's, you know, the f- finale, that that final scene where they're on the beach together, uh, that the credits might sort of speak more to that, they're, this sort of coming together, but they don't. They kind of atomize them again and set them mm. off apart alone. Um, which you also see as the episode, um, you know, goes on when they're dropping the kids off at school. There, there, there isn't this kind of sisterhood bonhomie thing that you thought that I thought there was going to be, you know, dep- judging by last season, which I think is kind of realistic. Um, and I think that the, the credits kind of setting them apart like that, um, is a good indication of that. Yeah, and that's sort of what, you know, we, we get some stuff with, with Celeste and Nicole Kidman's character. She's having these bad dreams. Dreams will be a big part of the whole season, I imagine. Um, but we get sort of pretty quickly to the second, you know, first day of second grade, the kid drop off, a great excuse to have all the parents come together. But Bonnie's isolation, even from, the group is evident right from the jump um, and, and the ways in which she feels left out of, if there is sort of that bonhomie, that beach scene um, that we, we all did this together and we can stride into the future, having like conquered this toxic man. And then immediately it's just like, that's not, that's not what's happening at all. And Bonnie especially feels like left out partially because she was physically isolated by going out to Tahoe, partially because, you know, if anyone is quote unquote to blame, uh, which I don't, I don't think it's that easy, you know, it's her. And, um, and then, you know, as we talked about a little bit on Little Gold Men, like Bonnie and Jane were already, and you see that in the opening credits too. There's a shot of the five of them walking towards the camera and Bonnie and Jane, Shalane Woodley and Zoe Kravitz's characters are slightly off from the other three. Mm-hmm. And that I think has to do with like, uh, you know, a racial disparity and class disparity of like the privilege of Nicole Kim and Laura Dern and Reese Witherspoon, these like, extremely affluent white women is different from these other two women and their experience in the town. And, um, you know, that, that was the theme that they definitely explored in season one, but is even more apparent in season two when, um, the infighting should have turned to, uh, camaraderie and, and hasn't, and has fallen 
on a fairly sharp line uh, with Bonnie. Yeah. And I think later in this episode, when Bonnie, who is feeling so conflicted, goes to the police station and sort of waits outside of it, you know, thinking like, oh, am I going to go in and confess or whatever? Um, you know, just the kind of image of a, of a woman of color alone in this very affluent white town being proximal to a police station. I just, I just like that was an interesting sort of like weird visual thing about, you know, about race and the justice system. And, you know, because potentially were she to come forward with that, would she be treated with more harshly than Reese Witherspoon's character would have been or Laura Dern's, you know, like, like, I think that I, I'm, I'm glad that the show is so far not shying away from those questions. I mean, this first episode doesn't really go deep into that, but like, I'm hoping that that, you know, sort of obvious thing way that Bonnie's separate from the everyone else. Well, not just because that she's the lone person of color, but also because she's the one that actually did it. Right. And so it's super easy. Well, not so much for, um, sorry, I'm, these character names. That's okay. What is anyone named? Um, Madeline, Celeste, Bonnie, yes. Renata, Jane. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, it, it certainly might not be easy for, um, Celeste to let go and move on as we see in her scenes, um, both in therapy with the great Robin Weigert, um, and with, um, her mother-in-law, but like Renata and Madeline, you know, it's kind of business as usual for them because what do they, what do they really have to feel in terms of worry or guilt? Um, so I think it'll be interesting watching, you know, that, that sort of, uh, togetherness that we saw briefly at the end of last season, sort of frayed and inspected and, uh, picked apart i guess as the season goes on yeah and i mean you you know you raise this question here and elsewhere of why even have a second season when season one felt so good and and they covered most of the text of the book um and i should just say that like bonnie's backstory is actually something from the book that they left out in season one that seems like season two is going to explore so there's there is that tiny bit but there's also like doesn't for me this feels like a better quote unquote ending where it shouldn't end with like happiness on the beach. It should end in anxiety and, and, um, worry, eternal worry and, and, and division and, and wearing at you. And also what I love, and you see it right from the beginning in this episode is, um, Celeste, Nicole Kidman's character, her complicated feelings around the Perry character. Um, this was a theme of season one where she was like an abuse victim who the violence was sort of tied up in the sexual relationship in a way that didn't make it as clean as some people would like uh, cases of abuse to be. And they're not always clean. And so the way in which Perry partially kept alive by his mother, Mary Louise, uh, you know, continually telling the boys, your, your father was the world's greatest man. He was the best. We were so lucky to have him. And also by Celeste's own, own feelings. Like she's not, she's not blind to what he did to Jane. She's not blaming Jane. I really liked that scene between Jane and Celeste, but she is still conflicted uh in her emotions around it that what a like juicy interesting um take to try to land you know what i mean it's not sympathy for the rapist but it's like sympathy for the the woman who spent so much of her life loving that person you know yeah and i think it will be interesting to see i mean we already see it in in certain scenes in this episode but as the season goes on like 
how much are we going to learn about, um, you know, what son inherited from mom, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think, you know, already the way that she treats the, her, her grandkids, like, like, t- you know, imparting, telling them to behave not by saying that they're being annoying or rude, but saying like to become the great people that the great men that you are destined to be, this is what you need to do. You know, it's, it's so aggrandizing and you can see where her son might've, you know, gone way off the the path um, after hearing a lot of that stuff, you know, throughout his youth and adolescence or whatever. Um, So I'm excited. And I think that one scene at dinner where she talks about, talking to other mothers and being mad at them about that their stupid sons are alive and then screaming like that scene is insane. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> so delicately pitched, you know, um, by both the direction and the writing and, uh, and the acting. Um, so I, I, you know, if, if that's what it means to have Meryl on this show playing a quietly avenging, grieving mother, like I'm all for that. You know, I was worried a li- that this season might be a little too sensationalistic because you know, once the crime's committed and then it's the, you know, it's not the, it's not the crime, it's the cover up. And so right, I, was, right. I was a little nervous about this season just being all about that scramble. But if there's going to be these, you know, if they're going to be these interesting emotional components, um, you know, uh, between Celeste and her mother-in-law, but also with Jane talking to Celeste about her guilt, like, um, I think that as long as those interesting dynamics get explored, um, I think a lot of what I expected the season to be won't actually prove to be true, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is such an interesting thing because Mary Louise's character shows up and I think what we're used to in TV is uh when you meet the parent, you're like, oh, I get it. I get how that person turned out that way. And like you said, you can kind of see it in the way in which she talks to the boys and talks about her boys and and um and all of that. You can kind of see it, but it's not like she shows up and she's a monster and you're like, Oh God, you know, no wonder Perry was this way. You know what I mean? Because she's not, she's loving to the boys. She tells them she's not a Celeste's enemy either. You know what I mean? She's on Celeste's side to, you know, to a certain degree. Um, and it's all just so modulated and so complicated, uh, in a way that it didn't need to be. And it is. And that, you know, that's, that was true of season one as well. It's like, we were like, ooh, this soapy show with murder where these women are just gonna like yell at each other and why oh, can't wait. And then we're like, oh God, this is complicated. <laughs> and it's complicated again. And I, I love that about this character and, and, and this positioning of her. And, you, you know, like every time she talks to the boys, um, to those twins, you're like, ooh, uh, what, ooh, what, what messaging are you imparting here? Like, w- we don't really want the woman who raised Perry to like help raise these boys, but at the same time, it's not on its face awful, you know? It's it's fascinating to me. So yeah, and those kids are good, by the way. Those 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 twins. Like the twins yeah, they're they're, they're good. better. Yeah, I, I remember them being like a weird weak weak link in the yeah. first season. I don't know why. Um, and they they were. I think they're good. And um, my favorite kid though is is still Ziggy Young Sheldon. Um, yeah. I think that kid is. I I'm I just thought he was incredible in season one, and and I think he's. I mean, we didn't see much of him in this episode, but I think he's still just a really really talented kid that I'm glad is not like, I'm glad his young Sheldon commitments didn't preclude him from joining them in season two. So. Uh, speaking of Ziggy, um, I, I thought it was really neat that they worked in the fact that Shailene Woodley um, works at the an aquarium in her off time into mm-hmm. the show. I thought that was great. You know, 
Um, because I just imagine in her real life, Shailene Wood is just like talking to octopuses and, and stuff like that. And that they were able <laughs> to fold that into the series, I think is really great. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, Shailene, Shailene is always at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. You can always just find <laughs> her there. Uh, she doesn't actually work there. She just like stands in front of the tanks and talks about, uh, the sea creatures. Um, yeah, there's a, there's another addition to the cast, um, in her like, cute co-worker Corey, uh, played by douglas smith um who i know from big love I yeah don't know. same yeah. Yeah, yeah another another big l show um yeah <laughs> uh and i was like oh there he is and like yeah because you know, he played a teenager on that show well i mean then i guess and he got into his like early 20s uh, later seasons but i looked him up and he's like 33 years old he and still I, looks like 18 it's yeah. so crazy like between him this season and joseph cross last season who's also like baby face um it's just a funny yeah uh, i guess she's got a type um but yeah i i like that that she works there i like that she has her little apartment um something um our colleague katie rich messaged me earlier today she's like there's no good marriage on big little lies and it makes jane look really smart for not being married because like she's like we wouldn't it be nice if there was like one good marriage modeled to like compare everything else to um so on that note, let's talk about some of the marriages that we see in this episode. Uh, we've got some great stuff from Adam Scott as Ed. Um, I, I loved him in season one and he's just like as good as ever. Um, as is, um, oh, you don't have his name in front of me right now, but the actor who plays Nathan, who's James Tupper. Uh, yeah, James Tupper. Fantastic stuff. Um, once mm-hmm. again, these are all characters. Um, and then, you know, we see very little of the, of, um, Renata's husband. We see him playing with his train set, but we don't see like a lot from him in this episode. Um, but, you know, these are all once again roles that could be caricatures. I think the only character that borders ever on caricature in the show is Renata as played by Laura Dern, but it's so fun that I don't mm-hmm. care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. she's like forever, the fashion like, shoot yeah. scene in this yes. episode. You're like, okay, like <laughs> yeah. you just yeah. want memes to be made. You want gifts to be made from that, but which is fine. You know, we're all human. Yeah. I think, I think the, the Laura Dern gifts will be, will be flowing, uh, this season, uh, and not just based on this episode. Um, but yeah, the scene that I really loved was between, um, Ed and Nathan, this like, um, will you, will you talk to Bonnie? Like Nathan asks Ed to talk to Bonnie and then immediately like asks him a favor and then immediately goes like, you're a snide fuck. Like a great line, uh, yeah. written, beautiful line, beautifully delivered. And just like the, the back and forth and like how much Adam Scott is like, still kind of doing Ben Wyatt, but differently, but like he's just sort of like, cool calm reaction to things uh these these crazy things that get thrown at him i just i i i love it what do you what do you think of the husbands on this show Richard? Uh, well i thought that scene was excellent and i i think that you know when, when you watch shows uh that have you know a decent size ensemble cast you know and, and you watch it over you know many hours and you're like wow these people these characters like only ever talk to each other and i think that 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 scene between the two and kind of acknowledge that in a funny way. It's like of all the people in Monterey, you went to your ex-wife's current husband to talk to your current wife. Like, like, and it, you just kind of got this kind of joke that they're just these people who are stumbling around this beautiful, but kind of gray and dreary town. Um, 
stressed out, miserable in unhappy marriages and all they can do is talk to each other, you know, cause it, like they don't have any recourse outside of their little bubble. Um, and for whatever reason, I felt that most palpably in that scene, just because it was so improbable that he would ask for that kind of help. And yet he did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's another great Ed scene where, um, Ed is grocery shopping and he runs into, uh, the character Tori, who is, um, married to the man who Reese Witherspoon had the affair with in season right. one. And so, uh, that, you know, that's a little context that they're like hoping you'll remember from two years ago previously on Big Little Lies. Uh, Reese Witherspoon had sex with this woman's husband and, uh, Ed doesn't know. But Tori definitely knows. And so she's there with her, with her boob job and her, uh, uh, well-earned bitterness towards her husband. Uh, what did you think of the, of the grocery store meetup? I, I thought that was the funny scene because he was like, I didn't recognize you. And she's like, yeah, I had my boobs done. And it was kind of like, was like, I didn't recognize her either. And I wasn't sure if that was because of that or because it was just like, it's been two years and she was not the biggest character last season. Right. Um, but I thought it was a clever scene. I also love Nathan's other big scene where, you know, um, they go to the school with, for, to talk about the daughter's college perspectives and she drops this bomb that she doesn't want to go. And then Reese is just like, or Madeline, excuse me, is freaking out in the parking lot. Um, it was fun to see that side of Madeline back after a two year hiatus, you know? Um, so yeah, I just think you're, that the husbands are used, um, very well. And I was worried a little bit that the second season would be like, Oh, they were such hits and they would kind of move them more into the light, which they, I mean, just based on this one episode, they haven't done really, but they're, they are using them judiciously, um, as well. They should because they've cast very well. Yeah. I love that. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I can't tell how serious they're trying to be in that scene. But when, when Nathan is like, stop yelling at me, you hit me. And, uh, you know, for me, it makes me consider like if the genders were reversed, how unacceptable that whole interaction would be. And I, right. I feel like that's sort of the point is like, stop yelling at me. You hit me. It's kind of played for comedy, but it's still like, um, all right, let's look at this. Like that, that happens. Abuse. From, you know, female partners to male partners, even, even though these are ex-spouses, like that happens. Um, so, you know, Madeline certainly has an abusive personality, uh, in many, in many senses of the word. Yeah. And for her to push him yeah. when literally she was at the pushing death of another yeah. man, you know, not, yeah. not that long ago, um, felt, you know, had some extra weight to it. Absolutely. Um, and then let's talk about Otter Bay, the, uh, the school itself. Um, we, we lose the Greek chorus that we had in season one, which was like all the, all the other parents, uh, giving their sort of in, in their interrogation scenes, giving their assessments of, of the, the women at the center of the story. So that's not a part of season two, uh, the Greek chorus. And I don't really miss it being gone. Um, the only thing that has survived is PJ Burns, uh, principal character, um, uh, principal nipple, I think is his name. And there's just like, like the assembly part is great, but then that just like that interaction, that cupcake interaction he has with her is like so fast and great. And he's got so many good throwaway lines. Like she's walking away. I think the camera's off him and he's like, are these gluten free? Like there's just like all all this like little stuff from him. So I'm glad that he's the element of that, uh, that survived, but you still get when, when the moms come to the second grade drop off and the, and the dads are there too. Um, the, um, you know, them saying like, I told you these second grade moms are a piece of work. Like that's one thing that's happened. And then also when they're all gathering together, you just get a shot, a montage 
of the other parents looking at them in a way that makes it really clear that they're even before you hear that they're being called the Monterey Five, that they're being talked about and looked at askance. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I mean, I kind of miss like Hong Chow and Sarah Burns. There were some great actors who played who were in that yes. great chorus in the first season. Um, but I, I think, you know, you're saying that Renata is kind of the most cartoony. I find in a way that Madeline's interaction with the principal to be the, the show at its most cartoony. Mm. Because I think that naked hostility, um, is better guarded elsewhere on the show. Like it's less naked, the hostility. And I think that that's truer to the way that someone who fancies themselves as sort of sophisticated the way that Madeline does in a, in a sense. I mean, she understands that she has a cruder side, but like, I just don't know that it would be that, um, you know, and there would be that much open animosity, but maybe mm. I'm wrong, you know, maybe, maybe, and then they do, I guess there is history there. So, I mean, they're fun scenes, but like, to me, I think that conflict feels a little more canned than some of the other things on the show. Like you feel like she would talk nonstop shit about him behind his back but to his face she would be more I, diplomatic because and i yeah and i don't know yeah. that the, someone who worked at the school who was you know where this child this person's ch- ch- child goes would sort of go out of his way to create problems between her and himself you know like i think that i don't know there's something i, I just feel like there would be a little bit more of a strain to decorum um between them and then yeah she would go off talk you know talk to celeste or not or whoever else and just, like you know go off on him in that way and maybe yeah. try to sabotage him in a sort of more underhanded, um, secret way, less just going at it in the parking lot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, the other thing that felt like a little heavy handed to me is the, uh, to, to go back to Shalane Woodley's, um, hobby, the, the octopus metaphor of like, <laughs> did you know <laughs> yeah. that some women poison the males of the species and like the, the most beautiful thing can often be the deadliest sort of thing. So, um, that was, that was in my notes as the like a little too on the nose, uh, moment. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, um, you mentioned Robin, Robin Wiegert, who, uh, is having quite, quite the moment because, uh, the Deadwood movie just happened. That's my favorite, uh, thing that she's ever done is, is she plays Calamity Jane on that. But she, she, you know, she did great work in season one as, as Celeste's therapist. Um, watching these episodes in season two, and I think it gets a little bit more apparent as the season goes on so we can revisit this. I'm actually not confident she's a great therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You and yeah. I, you and I both do therapy and, um, I, no, I hope that's okay to say. And like, I, uh, I, I don't know. She just like, she's, there's different styles of therapists, obviously. Like it's like finding the right, you know, hairstyle or whatever like finding the right therapist for you or the right approach for you is its own thing but like her approach is so um just putting her opinion in in a way that i'm not used to uh you know in my experience with therapy which is like usually the therapist tries to draw things out of you and her character is like well you're doing this and you're doing that and aren't you doing this and uh have you considered that it's this uh so i, I don't know i don't know if that's intentional or if i've just had a different experience with therapy but i, I want to put us on like bad therapist watch no i i know what you mean two. i think and maybe it's because we're the observing audience but they're in this in her scene in this episode you get a sort of smug vibe from her a little bit yeah because she was like i was right about this and she's talking in those soothing soothing therapy you know, putic tones, but 
Um, yeah, I know, I know what you mean, and I'll be curious because those scenes from the first season with Nicole Kidman and Robert we- Robin Weigert were the most electric of the whole series, I think, you know, and it was Kidman acting, you know, doing a better bit of acting than, you know, she's always good, but like that was kind of otherworldly and she yeah. got such good support from Weigert. Um, so obviously they were integral to last season being having the emotional resonance that it did beyond just the kind of fun soapy stuff. Um, so obviously they were going to return to that. Well, I'm curious to see if they evolve it, you know, if they, if they kind of dig mm-hmm. deeper and change it or, and, and maybe highlight what you said that you're, you're sort of dawning skepticism about her techniques. Um, I, I hope they do because I think that, um, you know, I want more scenes of them together. And I think that Weigert, um, is certainly a capable enough actress to, to handle a little bit more expansion of that relationship. And I mean, there certainly are bad therapists out there. So maybe that's an, Oh, I've had them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. uh, okay. Let's talk about just like a couple more things before we wrap up. Number one is another thing that I want to sort of pick. I mean, I really loved this episode. Let's be clear. Um, we're just sort of like going to touch on a few things that, uh, I have question marks around. One is this Sifyun Stevens music cue that hits, um, <laughs> when Jane's dancing on the beach. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's mystery of love, which was used so famously in call me by your name. And so recently, that is kind of astonishing that it's on this soundtrack uh, to the point where Katie Rich is like, do you think it's a temp track? Like, what is it? Why is that there? Uh, did that stick out to you? What do you, what do you think of, of well, that choice it, there? It stuck out to me because you and Katie told me it was coming before I watched <laughs> the episode. But, um, you know, I thought it was interesting um, from two perspectives. One, I didn't really realize that that was a song one could dance to, but there's Shailene Woodley to prove us <laughs> sort of wrong. <laughs> Sort of. Sort of wrong. I like it. She's like, that must look weird. And he's like, yep. (laughs) It it very much did. Um, But also, I don't know. I think that there is something funny about imagining Jane, you know, one night free in the fall of 2017 uh, or or early winter of 2018 and being like, oh, I have have a night to see a movie. I'm going to go see Call Me By Your Name. And loving it, you know, I, I think there's something, uh, you know, she has a, she's younger, she's sensitive, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I like the idea that she saw the movie, loved it, and then bought that song on like iTunes or whatever. All right, so I'm going to be looking out for her. What are other signs of her calling by your name, fan? If she starts eating peaches, like... Start, start, we... Starts wearing, like, white high... T- like, starts, you know, like, I don't know if you <laughs> notice this trend, but, like, the summer after calling by your name, like, every gay guy between 20 and 30-something for that summer was like dressed like Timothy Chalamet or like Army <laughs> Hammer, like either deliberately or not. Um, so yeah, we can Amazing. see if the wig white high top show up or if there were <laughs> or more songs from the movie. There are a lot of songs on, on that soundtrack. I will be looking out for the psychedelic furs. All right. Um, and then the last thing that I want to talk about is the surprising uh, use, not surprising, I guess, how much Alexander Sarsgaard is still in the show, despite the fact yeah. that his character is dead. Um, yeah. He gets a whiff in the opening credits with Alexander Sarsgaard. He won the Emmy for, for his role and he was incredible in season one. Um, and then they just made the choice to, um, via flashbacks and dream sequences and stuff like that, keep him around in a major way in, in, in season two. And, uh, something that I compared this show to just because they kind of came out and followed the same track at the same time is 13 reasons why 13 reasons why is a show that on Netflix that was kind of controversial from the start, but it covered an entire book in its first season and then decided to expand it to season two and season three, I believe. And, um, 
season two, I thought was like a disaster zone. And, and one of the things of season two that was so hard is there's this great central performance in season one of 13 Reasons Why by Catherine Langford that, that, that of course they want to bring her back because she was so good, but like she was already dead in season one. She was already a ghost in season one. So like to bring her back in season two just almost broke the show, bending over trying to include her. Um, doesn't, that doesn't feel like the case here that they want to still use. And he was always a supporting character, but they want to use Alexander Sarsgaard. It makes sense since this season is like, I compared it on little gold men to the telltale heart like that this is a season about the way in which these women are are haunted by what they did um that you would bring him back but i i just like the way that they're doing it and 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 the extent to which they're doing it i i i agree and i think that you know you have an emmy winning turn from uh an actor who's long been in the hbo family like yeah you you try to you know use him to some extent um for the for the next go around um I will be curious, and I think I'm a little nervous about how large he's going to loom over the women on this season because it's that still gives him quite a bit of power, um, which is maybe the point, and and I think it's a fair point to be made that like the physical removal of an abuser does not fully remo- remove them from your life, you know, or anyone's life. Um, there's obviously lingering. Um, stuff that, 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 that can, you know, hold on for forever. Um, and I think that was kind of the creepy thing about the scene where, um, Celeste's mother-in-law was talking about how the grief would, you know, you, you don't just like toss it away or get over it like a cold and filtered through what Celeste knows about her experience. The, she's also hearing like everything else isn't going to go away either, you know? Um, but I just do hope that maybe this season is about them fighting that ghost, um, and if that's the case, then I'm all for it. But I, I just, I hope that they don't give him too much prominence because, you know, this is, again, I don't, I don't like him having that power, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a good point. Um, I, I especially liked, I hear your trepidation. I especially liked the fact that one of her sort of like flashes, well, several, but like the, the one that, that really sort of got under my skin the most was this like very dreamy romantic one where they're just like yeah. slow dancing, uh, to I think Nina Simone. I think that's right. Anyway, um, you know, and, and just further underlines the complicated feelings that she has. Like, and it's a very, it's a very nice show don't tell because she's, she tells Jane, Celeste tells Jane, it's complicated. Like her feelings around losing him are complicated, but we know that's all she needs to say is it's complicated. And we know what that is because big lies because of Jean-Marc Vallée and the way that he tells stories and the way that that has been replicated in the season is such an interior show. We got this so much with sharp objects where you just sort of like inside people's heads all the time in this really cool visual way. And so the fact that we see her slow dancing with him, like does the work for us. We know what it's complicated means. She doesn't have to say, sometimes I think about him this way, you know what I mean? We've seen her do it. So yeah, yeah, especially when, when what we saw in the first season is that so often those moments of intimacy and, uh, uh, and warmth were either preceded or proceeded by an act of horrible violence. You know, it was either the makeup or the prelude or whatever. And so, Obviously, there would be such a confusing, un, un, you know, un, un untieable knot, uh, that where, where that stuff is all exists on a, the sort of, you know, on a continuum. Um, and I think that that's a really, and I think that's, like you said, like the interesting thing about what the style that Valet works with is that it can get so psychological. Um, 
you know, so I, and I like that now that, that, that psychology, that sort of window into psychology is being extended, um, to Bonnie. And, um, yeah, you know, I think that offers an exciting new landscape for, for the show's, uh, style. I completely agree. Yeah. The, um, the scene that really gets to what you're talking about is there's the, there's a moment where, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to anchor it because there's so many times where it flashes between things, but there's some sort of beach scene, probably Jane on the beach or something like that. You hear the cry of like the gulls and then that sound of the gulls sort of crying. You hear a similar sound come out of Nicole Kidman as uh, in a flashback of a sexual encounter that is violent and loving at the same time. It's once again, it's so complicated and, and just like really good. And the way in which the water motif, which will continue, uh, to expand in the season, the, um, like the tentacle drawing that Jane is doing of Perry and all this sort of stuff. Like just one thing that I really loved about season one is, you know, uh, Leanne Moriarty's book, Big Little Lies is set in uh, a coastal town in Australia. And so they moved it um, to the U S and I believe that there was some discussion of putting it somewhere inland, somewhere in Los Angeles or something like that, uh, because you need a super affluent kind of town. And uh, you know, and then I think it was, Either Jean-Marc Vallée or David E. Kelly, I can't remember which, insisted like, no, we really need the, the coastal beating of the waves. It's an important part of this story. That sounds like a Jean-Marc Vallée call to me. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how they landed on like Monterey and Carmel. And, you know, those are very affluent communities, but you still get how, how much that the crashing of the waves and the roaring of the wind and all of that is important to the story. So, well, the weather is so unreliable, you know, they can order their lives with money um, and, and all that um, to, to a certain extent, but they can't control this kind of otherwise wild place, um, which, you know, the, just the, the, the simple visual metaphor of that is, you know, you can't get that in, I don't know where Kansas city. <laughs> You certainly cannot get it in Kansas City. All right. Is there anything else you want to say about this first episode um, before we, we wrap it up? Um, I don't think so. I think we, we kind of covered everything that had popped for me. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be back with the show. You know, like I said at the beginning of this episode, like I was not happy when they announced it. Um, and maybe I'll be yet disappointed further down the line. I think, we, you know, we have another seven episode season. But uh, so far, so good. And so far, you know, I'm someone who has long loved Meryl Streep like so many others, but in recent years had been like, eh, she's kind of doing Meryl drag at this point, you know? Mm, yeah. Uh, and so I'm glad to see her working in a new sort of more low key ish. I mean, she's playing a kind of a nutty character, but it's, 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 it works within the texture of, of the, of the bigger show. And so I think that's, that's reason enough for, to keep me coming back. But also, of course, this podcast <laughs> is the other reason. <laughs> Um, excellent. Well, so, so a reminder to everyone that if you want to email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, we'd love to get your, uh, emailed thoughts of anything we might have missed or, um, I don't know, wig watch 2019, whatever it might be. Um, our colleague Sonia Soraya has some sort of unified theory of bangs for the season. So <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a lot of hair stuff we maybe uh, neglect to talk about, but we will get to it, uh, eventually. Until then, Richard, where can people find you? Uh, I'm going to be oiling up my Zippo lighter so I can menace it, you know, someone with the, the, the sound of it flipping o- open and shut. Um, Ooh. You know, because it's, it's really effective, clearly. Um, and I'll also be tweeting at Rylaws and on VF.com. Where will you be until next week, Joanna? 
Um, memorizing the lyrics to the Otter Bay School Anthem, uh, perfecting my snort. <laughs> but you wrote it. Why do you need to memorize it? You, didn't memorize you know, it I wrote it so many years ago. <laughs> I need to refresh myself. Anyway, or you can find me on VF.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, and we will see you next time. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.